John 5. We went through two of the signs in John last week. The sign changing the water to wine, and then the sign of healing the nobleman's son. Changing the water to wine demonstrated his power, demonstrated who he was, demonstrated his character, that he could actually change one thing to something completely different. And that also has something to do with what he does with regard to us. It also then in the second sign demonstrated the nature of faith. The fact that faith for us today is not based on signs and sight. It's based only on God's promise, only on his word. Tonight we put into John 5, and what we're going to hit tonight, we hit back a few weeks ago. We were first introducing this by kind of talking about some of the examples uh, of grace and truth, because remember the opening in the introduction says that when they saw Jesus, they saw one full of grace and truth. And so is there, uh, we're going to see here an example, I would say, of grace. And so if we put in at verse 1, it says, And after this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, just five porches. And in these, there were many invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man who was there had been ill for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time, that, by the way, she says, what about Jesus? Yeah, he knows everything. Because how would you know a guy had been laying there a long time unless he had a sign sitting there going, hey, I've been here for 38 years. So, so he says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. Doesn't hit him, doesn't touch him, doesn't spit on him. He simply says, stand up. And it, just like this is just like the nobleman's son. He just says the word. He's not around him. He's distant from him. They're not even by the house. Stand up, take your mat and walk. And at once the man was made well, took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It's a Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your mat. But he answered him, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, Well, who is the man who said to you, Take, up, take it up and walk? The man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. By the way, what did the man do in verse 15? There's two things he does here. What's the first thing? He went away. What does that indicate? He walked. He walked, but... He didn't go back to being lame. He didn't go back to being lame, but there's another thing he's doing in, in walking... The Jews, are the Jews there with him at the mo this moment? No, what's he doing? Went to tell them. Yeah. He goes to tell them. The, the, the very point that he goes to them is showing that he's intentional in finding them to tell them. And then what does he do? Rats him out. Okay. When we read this yesterday, how did you describe it? He threw Jesus under the bus. Yeah. That's the way my wife said this yesterday in the car. So later, so later Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, oh no, excuse me, verse 15, I missed my verse. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is still working and I am working. And for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, thereby making himself, and in the Greek, literally, equal things to God. He says he's equal with God. And the Jews really understood. By the way, that's really important because John's putting that in there as an interpretation for people like us that would read that saying, well, well we call God our father. We wouldn't think that we're making ourselves God. But in their culture, for somebody to say, my father, that was really 
Yeah, that was uh, that claiming was, you're part of the household. It, it was claim you are, and it's claim yeah, and it's claiming to be God in this context by saying he's. With the Jews always spoke of God as their father. You never said my father. That individualized it in a way that's not true with the rest of us. We are not. In fact, where would you go in the Bible to demonstrate that if you're not a believer, you're not part of God's family? Where's a verse that just plainly says that there's. Okay, let's go take a look at that one. First of all, I, I don't I don't know exactly which one you're referring to, but I know one in Ephesians, and let's go back to Ephesians chapter two. Let's go to Ephesians two. Keep going this way. Yeah. Next book. Very next book. Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, it's so short we just flip by them, don't we? One, the book is short, like a couple pages. It's a really short book. There's a couple pages here. Ephesians was right before. There you go. What'd you say, Ephesians what? Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go to verse 1. I mean, we might have hit this. I don't remember. You teach too many studies in a week, you get mixed up. I'm sorry. <laughs> it says in verse 1, it says, And you, being dead ones, by means of your trespasses and your sins, in which you walked then, according to the age, which has the character of this world, according to or by the standard of the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit that is now wor wor working in God's sons, Sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted yourselves then in the cravings of your flesh, performing the desires of the flesh and of the thoughts, and you were by nature God's children, children of wrath like the rest. So that seems to indicate you were that at one time. You're not that now. If you're a believer in Christ, you're not that anymore. We're not one anymore. We are no longer a child of wrath. We're no longer a son of disobedience. We are now one of God's children. Now let's go to the end of the New First Testament. John. Let's go to somewhere in First John. First John. Okay, I was going to say it's the same writer. There's this a lot in First John. This is one of the key verses. So First John chapter three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Over this one. First John. First John. Almost there. One, the next one over. First John, and when you get there, chapter 3. First John 3. Let's go to verse, we're just going to put in at verse 10. We'll keep it simple. It says, by this are plainly visible the children of God and the children of the devil. I mean, that verse clearly says that there are two types of people in the world. There's the children of God and there's the children of the devil. He says the way you tell the children of the devil are the ones that are not practicing righteousness. Now we're talking verse ten. Verse ten. Now when he's talking about righteousness here, he's not talking about righteousness by a human standard. He's talking about by a divine standard, obviously. But he says the the one that is not doing righteousness, and doing righteousness means it's not not it's not a part of his life at all. It says this one is not from God. And then he goes on in the last part of this, starts with, with an and, which in the Greek we take as what we call an ascensive chi. Fancy way of saying we're translating chi even rather than and. And so he's saying the one not doing righteousness is even the one that is not loving. doesn't just say people. It says his brother. His brother. I was just listening to... Kevin Jeffries this afternoon speaking down at his church, and he says probably one of the worst problems in churches across the world today is that we are trying to love everybody but our brother. And he says the Bible never once calls us to love the world, never once calls us to love the neighbors. It calls us to love our brothers. That is our charge. And he says if Christians actually would spend time actually loving other Christians, instead of spent bending over backwards to try to make the world like us. And he says, it's hard. It's hard to have love in a church when you're doing everything in your power in a church to make unsaved people comfortable to sit in your midst. Because you can't really 
be real genuine Christians before each other, trying to make those guys comfortable. Because the things you're going to do and say among yourselves as believers in your family, well, just think about what you talk about in your house, behind closed doors, with your kids, that you, because this happened in my family, that my parents would turn and say, no, we don't talk about this to other people. <laughs> I don't know if you ever do that, but it's like you just kind of sometimes would say, this, this, is, this is for our family. This is not for everybody else to listen to. And likewise, that's true with Christians. And the New Testament is very clear on this. Our job is to love each other. And Jesus says, that's how men, all men know you're my disciples. Not by the fact that you show love to them. That doesn't show them anything. It's when you love other believers and they go, how come I can't be part of that? Well, let me tell you who Jesus is. <laughs> That's really what it is. It's kind of like the question about do, do we try to make people, people feel warm to win them to Jesus rather than them seeing warmth among us. It's not that we're rude to them. The Bible never says to be rude to them ever. But anyway, the point is... So like when I told Jen that following the Jesus of Mormonism leads to hell? That's straightforward. <laughs> That's straightforward. Can I get you some water? It felt really mean. <laughs> do, you, do you know what... Do you know um, in, when Paul is in... Um, but see, she, though, is seeing what they're doing as love. Right. Because she doesn't. Because she hasn't, because she hasn't apparently really witnessed a real kind of love. They're being, they're, they're being nice by you know, doing nice things that nice people do for each other, rather than people that are exhibiting a genuine, real care. I think in many cases they're convinced, convincing her. Now, see what I'm doing is love. Not that she's experiencing love herself, because if she actually stopped and thought about it, it'd be like works, guilt. You know, and things like that, and they'd be like, "Oh, they aren't loving me." Yeah, she's for her, genuine love, doing the real, real thing. Any of those things, like this is genuine leather. No, it's fake. Like when we asked her, "So, do you believe what the Mormon Church teaches?" She's like, "Honestly, I don't know what they teach. There's no nice people. And I really like the community that they create, and I feel welcome to the That's why I always tell, I if I could, I would be a Mormon. Because I like them. I told her that. But it. you, I have to wipe out everything about God. So what's more important? Right. It's like really a, you know, I always have said that if Mormons, if Christians would do in the power of the spirit what Mormons do in the power of the flesh, we would have a huge revival. Because they do it out of guilt to try to get someone saved so they can get points. Yeah. And that's a, and we, maybe it was here last week. I just, again, I'm confused as to when I shared this. But I was thinking of that statement. Oh, it was uh, Sunday when we're talking about that we're not under the yoke. Even Jesus' yoke. We are free from that burden. And so what, what do we burden ourselves with? What do we see on Sunday? Each other. With each other. And it's a willful burden. It's not a burden that we're forced. It's not a burden that I guilt you going, bam! I don't see you loving, brother. Yeah. You should be guilty. You, didn't you see Leslie and Gary? They had the need. That's, that's guilting people into it. It's when you see it and you go, huh. It's when you're encouraged to remember who you are in Christ and you then with love, you just honestly recognize a need and you just go out and do it. And you don't, you know. And and Because uh, biblical love and, and living out that, it's always going to be willing. It's never coerced. I don't have to strong arm you. I don't have to bend your arm behind your back and, and try to guilt you into doing whatever needs to be done. If I have to guilt you into it, then that's the wrong thing. And Jesus is a perfect example yes. of that because he went to the cross knowing exactly what was going to ha happen. He prophesied to the disciples many times, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. The Romans are going to take me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to spit upon me, mock me, put me to death. And on the third day, I'll rise again. And he, and he still went. You know, there was no guilting. He did it willingly. That's right. yeah. It's so much better than our kind of love. It is. It is. Because our kind of love... Almost always, almost always expects some sort of reciprocity. 
That's a negative term. Reciprocation. <laughs> Reciprocity is negative. We expect reciprocation. What? <laughs> yeah, we want a pat on back. We wanted the pat on the back. Yeah, we want we want to be called up front and presented with a plaque at church saying such and such and such and such. I mean, I. Or did you see that God? What? <laughs> did you see that God? Did you see what oh yeah, did? yeah. We want God to recognize what we did, and like that. And and that's a real that's a real game changer when you stop to think about that. That's not the way he calls us to live. He doesn't call us ever to live out of a sense of guilt. He calls us to just to say, this is what he's done for me. Wow. What do I get to participate in? So there's two families, family of God, family of the devil. Let's go back to John 5 if you're not already back there. So I'm going to ask couple questions. We, we've answered these, like I said, a few weeks back. But when he, Jesus heals the man, what are some things that are that you have to think about in this scenario? Because what, what's what's hap, what, what's the scene when when Jesus walks in here? What's the scene? Bunch of sick people around the pool. Okay, bunch of sick people around the pool. You got a feast. Uh, of the Jews, so there's some kind of a religious observance going well, on. Well, and also, what, so sorry, Ben, to cut yeah. you off, but wasn't the pool of Bethesda a pagan? They, it was some kind of uh, pagan worship place. I mean, like, I, I, I don't think so. You it's, don't think it was it's a pool that they brought the sheep in to the city. And they brought him in through a gate, and the pool, the main purpose of the pool originally, if I remember correctly, was that they washed the sheep through the pool to wash them off before they took him into the city and eventually would take him up towards the temple for sacrifice, if I understand. that's the Whether it originally had another purpose and was repurposed for that, that I cannot speak to. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Whether they're still, whether they were still doing that at this time or not, I don't know. They may have been bringing him in closer to where the temple was up the hill, but uh, so how many people does Jesus heal in this scenario? In this scene, one. one, and he healed a really good man, right? Sin no more. Yeah, tells him to sin no more. Everybody, let's find that verse. So where is this located? Where, where's this, this, where's the sheep pool located at? Everybody keep your finger here and see if you can find a map of Jerusalem in the back of your Bible. I don't know how you do that if you have a tablet version. My other one had a pool. Had like four locations, all over Jesus. Well, and I'm telling you to do that, and I don't even know if I have a map of Jerusalem in mind. I don't. Okay. I got one. No, I don't. The NIV Study Bible has one too. There you go. Mine was cool because it said the, the actual thing so, he did. <laughs> so can you see where it is? Sheep gates in the northern end, right? right what on. is up in the northern end? And so that isn't too. So right, that's not right, right next to the inner core. Okay, I was thinking it was down closer to the city of David, so I was wrong. So it is according to Ben. Oh, there it is. Yes. Oh, there it is. Clear up high. I was thinking it was down low too. Yeah. So it is right up there. Right. Yeah. Right there. I don't know if you have one, but here you go. Yes, I don't have it. It's usually in the back. That? There it is. It's right there. Here's the temple. Here's the sheep gate. Sort of in the main temple area. Did you see that? Sure. No. There's the temple, and there's the sheep gate right there. Did you see it? It was like, there's the temple, and there's the sheep gate. So, like, is it, like this is where it was all, like, gated or whatever? Like, yeah, well, there's a wall all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. Only certain yeah. gates to get into Jerusalem. Oh. So, this was an inside and they would take them like up here. Does it or? does it show the pool there, like pool of Bethesda? It's and... above it. The sheep gate. Sheep, goes yeah, the right sheep pool. Into the right temple grounds oh, of the Bethesda so pool is above it, about an inch or yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> 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 an inch or so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, interesting. Yours has numbers. A hundred thousand miles. Let's see. According to the scale, it would be about five kilometers. Not quite a tenth of a mile above the gate. Okay. A tenth of a mile. One city block. Not very far, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, huh. we have a lot of people. They're around a pool. It's not even, from what we understand historically, if it's accurate. Um, and that's where they think it is. 
And the reason I think that's where they think it is, because remember, this city has been destroyed a lot. Um, I think I'd heard years ago that the streets that Jesus walked on in parts of Jerusalem are probably under about 20 to 30 feet of rubble. That's how much how much destruction has come on this city in the last 2,000 years. So we have a, a, a pool. We have a lot of people sick. And we have a very deserving man. <laughs> no. Verse 14. It says, and Jesus finds him in the temple. So now the man's up to the temple. He's gone up to the temple. It said, look, you're healthy. Sin no longer. He doesn't say, hey, glad to see you're sick. And looks like he says, you become healthy. Sin no longer, so nothing worse happens to you. Now, we don't know this for sure, but the implication by Jesus' statement is that the man's illness was due to his sin. Sin. So, G the temple was that where they were going to like sacrifice the sheep or whatever? Or they would have sacrificed the sheep, yeah, yeah, they would have sacrificed him in front of the altar at the gate of the temple. So, that was the temple that that was the temple that was re remember Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and they came back under Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple out there, and Herod had come in and decorated it, remodeled it a little bit. So, that's this temple. So, uh, so with that then, he comes up there. So what does that demonstrate? That Jesus would take a man. He's got all these people. Is there a chance that somebody around that temple, or around that pool, excuse me, probably, let's just, let's say they were somewhat innocent in the fact that maybe they were born. Maybe they're like the man born blind in chapter 9. He's not blind for on any particular fault of his own. Is that possible? Yeah. And yet Jesus picks one person out of all that crowd, heals him, and that man is, from what we can tell, most likely a sinner. Everybody, we're all sinners, yes. But this man is apparently blatantly so. Okay. Now, Peggy. Oh, I'm sorry. So I feel like I missed the part about why we decided that he was he couldn't walk because of his sin. Because of the statement in verse 14 where Jesus says, sin no longer so nothing worse happens to you, implying you were in this condition because of some sin. So quit doing that. All right. Now, my wife asked me yesterday, we're driving up, and I have, I've been genteel about this, but I'll just be blunt. And we don't know this, but this is what for years uh, people that study this have suggested the, what this man was from. They think he had syphilis. Because syphilis is causes lack of strength in your legs. So it's not like this man could do nothing because a man apparently could try to get himself over to the pool, but couldn't actually get over there in time. We don't know that for sure. But that is what, what has been suggested because I guess back at that time, that was actually a real common, because they didn't have any way to really to treat it back then. And so as a result, a lot of people that have it and it would be, trouble them long enough that pretty so, soon they would lose. Contrary to the story of he fell out of a tree when he was a little boy. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Which he could have been. He could have been a naughty little boy that went up a tree and his mom told him not to. It could have been that simple, but I don't think that, that Jesus' statement here seems to kind of have a little bit of mm, strength to it. A little more kick. <laughs> We don't know that though. I'm just suggesting. Sure. Just I don't don't go around and say, "Oh, this is what the man did." No, just if you ever say it, they say, "This is what Jay some people." What you can tell them is, "This is what he said." It's in the Greek. This is what he said. <laughs> Scholars have suggested. Okay. So you're saying, so I'm assuming you're saying syphilis is sexually transmitted disease, right? Uh, but I, I I'm looking at this, though. He's been like this for 38 years. I'm not sure. Sure. How current issue. Well, I mean, you know where you know, but I don't know if this is something he's currently. Maybe is still. I mean, he's saying he stopped sinning, so yeah, you know, you've been caught in the act of sinning. And there's the possibility that now he's healthy. Maybe he'll go back and resume. For I mean, look at what well, says he's been an invalid. My Bible says right for, 30, for 38 years. Exactly. So I, That's what I'm saying. He might be healthy. He might go back and resume. Oh, bad behavior. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, can I ask you one other question? Well, okay, remember where you're going. But in verse 6, along with this, the NIV says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and then it says, and learned that he had been in this condition a long time. But you said, and 
new. No, no, it's it's the word exper he experientially knows this. So I really think it's not just it's not just objectively, it's really experientially knows. Crossing it out. That one wrong. Now let me just why would why would it say this should have been Oida? I, I think experiential shows shows you something about the fact that as God, he has more than just an outside knowledge. He has a knowledge that actually gets up close, can, can really, shall we say, get up close and personal to know what's going on. Yeah, I just would think that would have been Oida, like, he knew this guy had been like this for this long. Well, to, to use it, well, this maybe isn't a good example of it, but over in Matthew, when... You have the people that stand in uh, the judgment and they say, hey, we we healed in your name and we prophesied in your name and we did many, mighty works in your name. And what does Jesus say? Never, never knew you. And he uses this word, meaning I've never had a relationship of any sort with you. In that context, Gnosko really makes sense. Yeah. This place is a little tougher in that regard yeah. to kind of suss out exactly what he's getting at. But your question or comment? Um, so... Would that mean he, or possibly like he got that disease or whatever? Um, would he have been sinning those thirty-eight years and then like been saved? Like, like did he lay there for thirty-eight years because of all his sins? Like all his like that—that's the implication. What like, was his question? His question is: Is has this man laid there thirty-eight years for his sin? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say this man commits a sin at 18. What does that make him? 56? Did I do my young math right? Man. Yeah. My age. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Young man. There you go. There you go. Thank you. Appreciate that. And so for 38 years, 38? He, he couldn't like reach the pool. Yeah. Which no is what he's to, because yeah. only the first person was yeah. healed. Yeah. Because, I mean, because now that you mentioned the... the Which, again, tool, was any person yeah. healed? That, this that, whole story Bible really confuses me. Isn't there another story that talks about the pool being stirred? Actually, with some... See, you may not have it in the NIV, but there are some versions of the Greek text that have a verse added that says, at times an angel came down and stirred the water. Not in this the, one, but a different... No, different. in this, pa in this in text. In translation. I just uh, I'm seeing... Uh, in verse 4. And Ivy doesn't have it. This is the only time it. this story is told. No, because NIV yeah, doesn't have it. It's in mind. Oh, there's no verse four. It goes from it goes three, three to five. five. Yeah. There's where it is. Because you said verse yeah. four, so I'm like, some less important. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to ask that. Cause look, I have it in mind. I was looking, okay. So I, was looking, I have. I was looking at the NIV. Let me press right here. It tells you. Oh, 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 cool. So I got the note here. Okay, cool. Now this. Oh, oh, there, there's mine too. There's mine too. Yeah, I think Tim's gonna talk to that. No, mine, mine doesn't. I don't know. Share, share that idea. There it is. Okay. Manuscripts and So this. So this verse, verse four. This verse four is omitted in some of the earliest copies we have of John. Okay, that's why, and those earliest copies are what almost all of your modern translations are based on. The King James is not, it's based on later. New King James is based on some later. Not necessarily, that doesn't mean that they're not dependable. Those, they're not sometimes given the weight that they should be, but we're not here to talk about that primarily. It, it has been then guessed that because of this, what's going on in here, that somebody at some time in the history of the text thought, we need to insert an explanation and so somebody wrote something out. Or that there was an oral tradition that went around. And you and I don't appreciate that. I was actually just listening like a week ago. I think, did I mow the lawn a week ago or did you mow it? She mowed it. So it was a couple weeks ago. I almost always listen to Freakonomics podcasts when I mow, when I mow the lawn. I, love, I, I get excited about that. But they were talking about, um, in there they were talking about uh, oral history, and they were talking about that there are cultures that are predominantly oral and not written to this day. And the thing is, is you can have sometimes five generations that are alive, and the story is almost word for word from this guy five generations ago to the person telling it today, which is not true in our written culture. In our written culture, we depend on something written down, uh, and and so we're not careful. Are we missing that part? Well. What what this is what this is the way they're getting around saying this. They're saying because 
at that time, people shared this oral part of the story. They, they told this, that somebody said, well, let's just include this and add it. We don't know. We have no idea how it got in or if it was original, why it was ever left out. We don't know that. Some Greek manuscripts have it, some don't. Right. And we don't know exactly why, one way or the other. Everybody's taking a guess at it. But you can tell from verse 7 that the water was stirred somehow. Right. And there was a healing going on. So whether or not it was so an angel. So the reason I bring up the the pagan thing, I've heard this, that the Fool of Bethesda had some kind of pagan ties to it, and that just by being sitting around the pool, he would be sinning. So take up your mat, go and sin no more. Don't sit here at this pagan. false healing well. Mm-hmm. and Because he was probably putting more grace into that pool than he was in Jesus. Right, more yeah, trust, more faith yeah. than yeah. definitely... Because he wanted to get healed because... He was trying to get healed, yeah. It's crazy. But whether that's true or not, <laughs> okay. besides no. the point. No. No, it's an interesting, you know, it's an add-on. Mm-hmm. But it's still, I think it's kind of... Well, I don't know how, for 38 years, like, <laughs> he, like, never learned how to get there first. Okay. Because of, yeah, I was like... Get close, man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. Lay him on the yeah. edge. Well, let's say that, I mean, it's yeah. not like there's yeah. a ding-ding right. bell. Yeah. Oh, somebody's going to come down and trouble the water. Yeah. So you have no, all of a sudden, it's just that the water's troubled, and there's people that are fat. Maybe somebody's just blind, and they just have to feel their way over to the pond or the pool real fast. And this guy's got, he can't hardly move his legs, so he's dragging all this weight and dragging himself across the ground or hobbling to get over into the water. And the thing is, is that the pool would most likely have been open to the sky. And these guys are, it says there were many porches. So these people are all sitting out of the sun in the shade of these porches waiting for this to happen down there in the pool. So that means they're not right next to the pool. They could be 15, 20 feet away from the pool sitting in these in these porches. I mean, well, I guess it was good because Jesus himself healed them. So keep your finger here and just go back to chapter one, just to remind ourselves before we ask this question. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so technically, what it's saying is that somebody would come and stir it, stir it, stir it once a year, and somebody would get healed. Well, we don't know how often they came to stir it. Oh, whether it was once a year or once or, a month, or or Jesus was the only one that did it. Maybe. Um, it apparently had happened because it, they, the man had observed it, and other people had gone in and had gotten healed, and he'd never he'd never been able to get it because he, he couldn't get there. So it, it, let's see it this way: if you were watching, if you were sitting at the pool thirty eight years, and the water got stirred, and you watched a lot of people get healed, or for thirty eight years you watched people hobble down to the pool, get in, and hobble back out of the pool, you'd go, "It ain't doing nothing for him." And you'd say, I'm not waiting around anymore. But apparently th- there was something real happening. Okay, so here's what yeah. she's talking about. This is online. This person that wrote this. I've come to the conclusion that the Pool of Bethesda was a type of shrine for the Greek god Asclepius, the god of healing, where people be- believed in the healing powers to make them well. This site was not a Christian tradition, but a pagan one. But wouldn't have been Christian anyway, a Jewish one. Um, Jesus definitely interferes in this pagan practice. Jesus shows he's instantly able to heal a man who does, does not know he is, therefore has no faith in him to heal. Not just that, but he heals a man who's not been able to experience the healing powers of Pius. Perhaps in the account, John is telling the reader that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of that dude. The story is a demonstration of power by two opposing forces. Now, he goes on to say how, but that's what she's referring right. to. And that that's makes awesome. me wonder, uh, well, I don't believe that false god has any power, because I don't believe they're real. Uh, so, But Satan's real. Mm-hmm. So is this pool being stirred by demonic forces or by... An angel, as your translation said. Right. And that we we can't know, because (laughs) if we go with the angel text, it's an angel from the Lord. Right. Right. If we don't go with it, then we don't know who's stirring it. We just know the water's stirred. That's all we know. But I wouldn't, I almost made it sound like that God of healing was stirring it. And I don't believe that's the case. 
Which would have been a satanic miracle thing. But we do have to be careful with that because we have examples of Satan and his demons healing. In fact, the man of lawlessness is going to win over almost the entirety of the world in the future except for believers by doing signs, miracles, and wonders. Like the apostles and Jesus himself did. They're going to fool people. In fact, I was... I, I think we're going to hit it Sunday. I'm not for sure because uh, I'm trying to decide. I'm trying to pare back how much stuff I've got. But we're going. Um, but in Matthew 24, Jesus says that there are going to be people that are deceived, and He says they're going to do signs that are so convincingly deceptive. He says that they would deceive even the elect if it were possible. He's saying it's not possible, but the signs are that convincing that even the elect would be tricked. Even the elect would be deceived. So I think we need to remember Satan and his forces have the ability to do things that are beyond our understanding of, of natural powers. Yeah. It just seems to me, though, every time you, in the Bible, if there's a, a false person healing somebody or something... They pointed out. That's not pointed out here. Usually, this is actually the case. So I, I, this is this is by God, and He's like, "You've been here a long time. I'm going to heal you instead of you waiting for this pool." Yeah, that's right. So they were offended. They're apt to take off at yeah, this moment. Course. I offended them. <laughs> I don't know about that pool, uh, but I got a basketball award ceremony. Have, have fun. Thanks, you guys. Clap, clap, clap for us for Kylie. Okay. <laughs> so, we're going to go back to, to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 14. John 1, 14. John 1, 14. <coughs> it says, And the Word became flesh, it tented on among us, and we gazed upon his glory or his reputation, reputation as of one that was a special kind from the Father, full, and that not from the Father, actually, it's from alongside the Father, it's para, it's the same word that's used over in, anyway, over in, in John 1.1. 1, 1. Anyway, um, John 1, 14. Um, no, that was pros, I'm sorry, this is from alongside the Father. Anyway, full of grace and truth, but there he is, he's full of grace. So he says, you know what we saw when we watched Jesus operating? We saw one that had the reputation of demonstrating grace. And what, is this, what does Jesus do with this man that is, I mean, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. That's but great. this man that is plainly a sinner. I mean, he even, so much a sinner that what does he do after he's healed? <laughs> he says, goes straight to what does he do? He doesn't say thank yes. you. Yeah. And he goes and tattles. He doesn't, he doesn't say thank you. He, he doesn't he, give glory to God. He doesn't give glory to God. He runs back and he tattles. He has, my wife said yesterday, threw Jesus under the bus. I mean, that that's really the epitome of grace that you would do something for somebody even when they... And it seems kind of strange that he's getting healed and then somehow instantly, is, well, not instantly, but very soon is bumping into the Pharisees. Well, it's just outside like, the temple, right? That's right, it's at the temple. Well, yeah, but if you got healed, would you head to the temple or would you go home? But they're right there. I don't know. They're right there. <laughs> I don't know. What home? He's been there for three years. <laughs> this is true. He may not have had a home at this point. Yeah, what is his home? So I think that that's what I think. One of the things, if you remember, Besides the the desire of the human nature to want to tell people stuff is huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's at the it's you at the temple, bragging. and the Jews said to the man, "Isn't this the Jewish leaders here?" So they'd be around the right. temple, right, watching. He's probably going before the Pharisees. Look, I'm healed, and they're like, "Today's the Sabbath." It was him. <laughs> yeah. you know? So, so with that, look at verse sixteen. Back in chapter five. Back in chapter five, yeah, chapter five, verse sixteen. Look at verse 16. And because of this, the Jews persecuted him because this he was doing this, persecuted Jesus because he was doing this on the Sabbath. What else does that say about the grace of God? Could have worked all the time. Um, did it, even if there was going to be some bad stuff happen to him, mm -hmm. it didn't matter. He was for the good of that other person, not himself. Yeah. That is not what I was thinking of, but that's good. What I was it doesn't, doesn't uh, affect if you're under law. 
have to follow the law. We can't do this because this is law. And I think that that's, Jesus is living under law, and I think that that's important for us to always remember. He does live under law. Paul tells us that in Galatians. He was born under the law. But keep in mind, what he's doing in this, in this book is he, John is seeing things that he did that are demonstrating to him, hmm, he was demonstrating things that are true now. He didn't talk about it in detail because this stuff Paul calls a mystery. Grace as a way of life, Paul says, is a mystery, meaning God hadn't talked about it before. So Jesus didn't really talk about our way of life by grace, but he demonstrated it by his conduct. And this is an exercise of his deity. It's not like he was pouring concrete on the Sabbath. Yeah, this is true. And so what does he say at the end of verse, uh, or in... Uh, uh, 16. My father is working there until now, and I am also working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, the father doesn't put his feet up every Saturday. Is he also demonstrating how ludicrous it is that picking up your mat is considered work? Um, yep. Just... <laughs> I mean, well, right, they weren't supposed but, to be going collecting sticks, yeah, but, they weren't supposed to kindle a fire on the set. Did it talk about picking up your bed? I mean, they really made a lot of rules, right? But, but think of we went over this on Sunday. Remember the man that that was in the, the uh, synagogue and had the his withered. hand was withered, and Jesus said, Stretch out your hand because they were going, Is it, is it, is it? Okay to heal, to do good on the Sabbath. And they're just and they want to catch Jesus, is what it said. And what is Jesus just tell him, stretch out your hand. Jesus again, he doesn't spit on him, he doesn't touch him, he doesn't he just just stretch your hand out. Every one of those men that were sitting in that synagogue, they'd stretched out their hand because they stretched it out to pick up something to put their because those a lot of those men wore that that shawl thing over their head when they traveled outside during the day. They put that, they would probably put their coat on, so they'd stretch their hands out. So he stretches his hand out. It's the fact that Jesus makes him heal, that he does something, he does a work of healing. And it just burned them like, like nothing. They don't even want, they don't even want God to do good on the Sabbath. Yeah, what was that? How did he say that exactly? Because it was something like, um, is it better to do? Is it to, to do well in one case, and he says it's better to do good on the yeah. Sabbath or evil. Yeah. He actually really throws it or evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is this. I just think that this is really interesting and very important because, and he goes on. This there's a long section in here where he talks about what he can do, and it has to do with what he can do as God. That he that he can judge as God. That he can raise the dead as God. That he can give life as God. Uh, so there's a lot of things like that that this text, this passage goes through. But I believe in terms of the sign, it's showing about what he can do as God in demonstrating grace. And some of the other things it says that he's able to do. Uh, let's just kind of look at some of these. Go down to verse 22. Well, let's go to verse 21. These are some of the things that the son can do because he's God. It says, for just as the father raises the dead and makes them alive, so also the son, he makes alive those who he wants to make alive. He uses the word fellow desires to make alive or wants to make alive. So he has the ability to give life. That's, again, he set up in the context, my father's working until now I'm working. So he's demonstrating what he's able to do because he really is equal with God. He's not a little equal with God. He's not equal in the league with God. He is God. So he's equal things with the father in this context. Verse 22, it says, for not even the father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son. In other words, the Son is the judge. When there's a judge, it's never God the Father sitting on the throne that's judging. It is God the Son that carries out the judgment. So he's able to operate on the Sabbath. He's able to make alive. He is able to judge. Um, in verse, uh, 24, uh, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you that, uh, that the one hearing my word and believing in the one that sent me, that one has eternal life and will. This is a beautiful statement. This is one of my favorite statements on eternal life. Has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is transferred out of death into life. I. That's one of those verses when I was growing up as a kid and I was, a, I never was afraid of losing my salvation, but I always figured my next step was going to be my last because I was, 
wasn't the worst kid in the world, but I definitely just know that I was not good. And I just, you have that sometimes, sometimes when you're raised under kind of a moderate version of grace at best. Um, and I still look back and just comparing my life to other people, other Christians that grew up in kind of similar backgrounds. I'm like, man, I got way more grace than some of these kids did. But nonetheless, and I'm not putting that all on my parents. I'm putting that on churches and other church people that I was with that just didn't do that. To, to, to grasp that when you believe and you get eternal life, that's it. The judgment's done. Christ bore it all. There's no more judgment, period. God may... God may discipline you as his child in the same way that a loving parent tells their child, I want more for you than this. And so this is to remind you, don't do that again, <laughs> because I want more for you. It's not to say, I'm going to do this, and if I have to do this again, we're done. You're not my kid anymore. No, God never does that. God says, I love you too much to let you behave like that. That's a big difference between God going, you pretty child, I'm going to, that's, that's rage. That's not love. God disciplines us out of love. Anyway, the main point is he, we have eternal life and we do not, do not come into judgment. We've transferred out of death into life. And then it says in verse 20, um, yes. Um, what does he mean we do not come into judgment? Oh, no, um, and shall not come into con condemnation. condemnation. Big word. Yeah, condemnation is just, that's just a bigger translation for a word judge or judgment. Real strong oh, okay. judgment. So we do not come into judge by... Meaning God doesn't judge us. Okay. God. And what's the judgment? Judgment ultimately is when God's going to stand there and look at you and go, you don't make it there. You're out of here. You're going to go to the lake of fire. It's when Jesus tells people, I never knew you. Depart from me. <laughs> yeah. And we've got different times. We have that in... In Revelation 20, where Jesus is sitting on the throne and these people are judged because they're dead, spiritually dead. Not they're physically alive, but spiritually they're dead. And they go to Lake of Fire. We have uh, uh, Jesus talking about that in oh, I just draw, oh, uh, Matthew 25. Matthew 25, where he's judging the sheep and the goats. And he says that uh, those that those that are the goats, he says they go away into... Uh, place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They go into the fire that was planned for the devil and his angels, but they're going there too, these people. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is the one that judges, I never knew you, depart from me, those of you that work well. In verse 29, in the context, um, a lot of people misunderstand that because it says those who do the good to a resurrection of life, those who commit the evil to a resurrection of judgment and they take that as deeds where in actuality it's do the good is believing which yeah do we have any other comments or questions on this sign the sign of the troubled water where are we right now for time we're at 47 minutes that's probably i'm gonna so i'm gonna jump ahead we're not gonna i, I thought for some reason Just i foolishly stop. thought we'd get the next sign i don't know why Just you stop. think we'll go oh, i know, I know. You guys, have, you guys just have way too many good questions and comments. That's good. Turn over to chapter 6. This is in the next sign, but let's look at this statement that he makes in here. Um, and it just, just to make sure we're all on the same page, once you get to chapter 6, uh, and um, we're going to go to 6, 28, and 29, but I want you to go back to 5, 29, the verse Leslie was referring to. Just to get it. This is in 5, 29. Let's go back to verse 28. Do not be surprised by this, for an hour is coming, and already is, in which those that are in the graves, they will hear his voice, that is, the voice of the Son of Man, that is, the voice of Jesus. And those having done good will come out unto a resurrection of life. But the ones having done evil, now the word evil here is phallos, meaning worthless. He did something and it didn't turn out to be anything. It was worthless. So they, it meaning that the, it's demonstration that most of the world, they think they're doing good stuff, but in the end, it's worthless. It would be like if you asked your five-year-old to fix 
Thanksgiving dinner and you just, I'm going to stay in bed and you turn them loose in the kitchen, would you serve what they worked on for three hours or four hours in the kitchen? Would you serve that? No, usually it would be worthless. They might even cook a bird and chances are the bird's not done. It's not, it's not edible, things like that. The whole point is it's worthless. So, so, so would it be, sorry, no, would it no. be like, um, you could do a lot of good things like to be like liked by people, but um, at, the end, at the end of the day, like if you don't believe in God or like work, like believe, like believing his work, like believing in his work is worth more than like the, all the good deeds you could have probably done like in there. It's like believing in his word and stuff like that. Like That's right. A greater value. Type of thing. Sure. So let's go to chapter 6, because this, this, I think, maybe will further answer your question. Chapter 6, and these are the next verses. Jesus is telling them, and he's telling them to stop working for the food that perishes, but for the food that remains to eternal life. And then verse 28, therefore they said to him, what should we do that we might work the works of God? In other words, what works does God want us to do? Remember he talked about those doing good over here in chapter 5? Well, this is another time. They're now asking what good things we might we do? What are, do these works of God? And Jesus says to him, this is the work from God, that you should believe in the one that he sent. Which tells you what the good work was before when it was talking about good work and bad work. It would, the, the good work is believing, and the bad work is the disbelief. Mm -hmm. And if we went, if you if you read all through chapter five, which I don't know, maybe that's the way we should start our studies. Just read through the whole chapter. It takes a while because we read through that yesterday, driving up to Wenatchee. It takes a little while to read through that chapter. But Jesus in there, he's saying, I mean, people are supposed to believe in me, and they're supposed to honor me like they honor the Father, and so forth, so on and so forth. So not believing in him would be the evil. That's right. And so all the works that people do, I don't care who they are, they could, you know, I always, always make the point, because it's easy, we were picking on the Mormons earlier tonight, but I always make the point, they could go to our church. And if they're in our church, and they're doing good works, thinking that it's going to get them in good with God, and they're going to help them get to heaven, guess what? Those are worthless works. Those are worthless works. And they're going to come out to a resurrection of judgment. It doesn't make any difference what church a person goes to. It makes a difference what they believe about Jesus Christ. It's That's kind of like comparing what you do and saying, I'm better than Jesus. My stuff is way better than yours. And they're saying, by Jesus' work, yeah. it's worthless. It's really what you're saying. Because I have to do my works, and that's what God will accept. But Jesus' work, eh. That's basically what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think, let's go to Galatians 2. Galatians chapter 2. There you go. Oh, let me back this way. You just passed it. Galatians 2. Look at Galatians 2 and look at the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 2, and uh, let's just go to verse 21. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through law, it doesn't say the law, it says just through law. Meaning, I've got something, I've got some rule, and I need a standard. I do something according to some principle, some law. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe God gave the law in the Old Testament. Maybe my church makes up that law. Maybe I make up the law, but whatever that is, I use it to say, I did that, so I'm good. He says, if righteousness, if I'm righteous because I've done this law, then Christ died for no reason. Right there. Yeah. If I can do it myself, whether it's a law from Moses in the Bible, or a law that I make, or a law that my church or another church or some group or person makes up, that, he says, means Christ died for no reason. Yeah, just like you were saying, uh, you know, to be a good Catholic, you got to get baptized yeah. in a church, so first communion, da-da-da-da, last rites. In the Mormon church, it's go on a mission, get married, 
da 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 da. You don't have those to are those are laws. Those are laws that someone has put in the place, um, but they don't measure up to what Jesus did. And they persuaded us of like you're doing good by doing this, so like God will like you more. Says not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by. But according to His mercy. Yeah. He has saved us. Yeah, that's Titus two. Three five. Three five. Three. So he's talking about those words that the church has like made up, like the rules or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, or any kind of yeah. rule. And interesting enough, there. I mean, they're well. If you go to the Muslims, they say you gotta pray five times a day towards Mecca. You've gotta um, pilgrimage. Huh? You gotta go on a pilgrimage. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. They have a little set of rules yeah. too. Uh, any Baptists have rules. Oh, yeah. Some Baptists but, do. That's what Jesus is talking about, like those rules at the Yeah, those, they don't cut it when it comes yeah. to God. Yeah. Turn over to the next book, just a couple pages, and go to Ephesians two. This is this is the classic verse I grew up with. I could. This is the verse I always would have quoted. I would have quoted you this verse when I was probably eight or ten years old. Ephesians two, mm -hmm. Ephesians two verse eight. Known this verse since I was a little kid. It says, for by grace you are saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's God's gift, and it's not from works so that no one can boast. See, if I, if I can do enough works, if I can do any kind of work that merits me getting to heaven or getting eternal life or anything like that, then I can stand there and go, look what I did. You didn't make it. You weren't as good as me. I'm Romans 4. Four, Romans five, four five is that's kind of become my favorite yeah. <laughs> on this yes so yeah so yeah there's all kinds of things that Jesus is demonstrating about his character we, and we can go look at that one go back to Romans chapter four just a little bit before this it's back before first Corinthians right before that Romans four go to verse five four. <laughs> Romans chapter 4 and I by the way and again I'm not trying to pick on Mormons but the last I don't know probably dozen times that I've admit, shared the gospel with Mormons I was very kindly bring them over to this to these verses because these they just stick out in my mind so much so verse 4 Romans 4 4 it says to the one working the reward it is not counted according to grace it's a debt so when you go to work, wherever your job is, one of your three jobs, when that boss, whoever it is, pays you or deposits money in your account, you earn that. They can't say, hey, here's a gift, right? You say, no, I worked for that. I earned that. I put in some time doing stuff. So he says, so if, if you do something and you get something, that's, that's not grace. That's a debt. They owe that to you. But, verse 5, to the one that does not work, but believes in the one who justifies, or that's a fancy way of saying declares righteous, the one who declares righteous, the ungodly. What kind of people does he declare righteous? Ungodly. 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 That's a, um, Jim's been going over the term godly in his class on Sundays. Godly meant to honor God, to really show honor to God. Godliness meant. Ungodliness meant to dishonor a God, to do something that was, horrible towards a God. I always, I put it this way, you know, just because I think it's shocking enough. Ungodliness is essentially like giving, flipping God the bird, giving him the finger. That would be ungodly. In the way we would understand it in our cult culture, one of the things that we would do, they'd go, oh, you do that to God, you know? So he says, he justifies the ungodly. That's what we all are. That's the whole point is, we're all that. From God's point of view, we're all ungodly. And he says, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. So to the one who doesn't work but believes. I mean, this is plain and simple. Jesus, either Jesus did it all or he didn't do anything. And that brings us then, let's, we have to close then actually by going over the gospel. So go to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the place where Paul clearly says it's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the one thing... A lot of people evangelize. 
and I'm not trying to in any way put down YWAM because I don't know what they'll teach you. Hopefully they'll be clear with this. But that's but I'm just telling you that and Josh Butler will tell you that going down there, he's New Tribes is really good with this, but he's amazed by how many times they run into missionaries or other Christian groups that they don't pronounce, they don't speak the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. And he tells it, well, let's read through the verses before this. For I make known to you the gospel or the good news, which I preach to you, that you received, by which you stand, through which you were saved, through the word that I preached, if you're holding firm to what? If you're holding firm to it, unless you believed it in vain. That is, you believed it with no purpose. There's no goal to believe in it. The goal is to be saved, to be forgiven. This is the gospel now, verse 3. For I handed unto you the first thing that I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. If he died for your sins, that means you had sins that he had to take care of, right? Died for your sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he was raised the third day, according to the scriptures. And he was seen. Yeah, and then That's verse five. Both and, Acts talks about he was seen. And then he was seen. Yeah, both accounts in Acts, once by Peter and one by Paul, they both say and he was seen. So this tells him, verse 3, he dies on the cross for his sins. Verse 4, he's buried. Verse 5, or verse 4, he third one is he's raised from the dead. And, and then verse 5, and he was seen. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Christ did it all. So when he says, according to the scriptures, you know, he says, Christ died of his sins, according to the scriptures. And then again, he says, rose, was buried and rose again the third, according to the scriptures. Is that kind of mean? That it came, that back in the Old Testament was kind of where the prophecy is. Yeah, it means that there was prophecy that Christ was going to, that, that you were going to have one that was going to have to die in our place, and you would have one that would rise. Yeah, there, would live. It didn't actually use the word rise, but it used other language to talk about the fact that he would live. Hmm. Isaiah 53 indicates that. So, so that believing in vain, um, that would be like, for myself, I'm going to give you an example. I believe since I was a little girl that Jesus historically died on the cross and rose again. But I didn't realize until I was a teenager that he did that for my sins and that it had a purpose of paying for my sins so that uh, I could be forgiven. So... There's lots of people who believe in a historical Jesus. I mean, who could not? There's more evidence that Jesus lived and died on a cross than Shakespeare. But in vain means, no oh purpose. well, he died. It there had no a purpose. It was for you. He yeah. died for your sins in so your could place. Be forgiven. And then that, that is with a purpose. So it's not just a historical faith. It's personal faith. And that's what people need to hear. People need to hear that message. We can run around and prove and try to show all kinds of things, but in the end, they either believe that that's true of Jesus Christ or they don't. That's, that's plain and simple, the gospel message. And we, we actually spend a lot of time missing going around that. And I... And I Sadly, cannot, I sadly have to say I can't tell you how many times I listen to people sharing the, sharing the gospel that never actually share this. Or maybe they tell people, that, you just got to remember Jesus died for you. It doesn't say he died for you. It says he died for your sins. That's what an unsaved person needs to hear. They need to see that Christ took care of their sins by dying Christ on the cross. Because number one, it shows that you are a sinner who sins. <laughs> You're yeah. not a perfect, good person. Yeah, could be. Um, what was the part where he says that he dies for Verse 3. Then saved or not convinced that they are Indeed. exceedingly sinful. They look at the things they do. Oh, I fed that person. That was basically a good thing, you know? And it, they don't understand how far separated we are from God and the place we're supposed to be and how much it takes to make up for that. It took God dying to make up for that. So you think feeding people in a soup kitchen or giving 10% of your income is good enough? It, it's never going to come close to 
being dead and being dead as God. Mm -hmm. Well, he had to take on humanity though to take it. It was one of the greatest things. Yeah, he could be his very representative of man. Mm -hmm. Suffer all of our infirmities. So we've moved kind of from the sign that really is demonstrating grace and demonstrating what he can do because of grace, because he's God, and move from there over to kind of where we are now, where it's God's grace. However, just, and we're not going to chase this down because we'd be here another 20 minutes, which wouldn't be a bad problem, but really what Jesus' sign is about is not just about how we get saved, it's also about how we live. It's the fact that we live by grace, which is also, again, another struggle that a lot of us have. Uh, I remember when I left seminary and came to Royal City. Oh, well, I know what grace living is. <laughs> I had no clue. I shouldn't say I didn't have a clue, but I was almost clueless. It's it's it, it, it was a, it's been a long thing, learning a lot of stuff through the years. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to regale you with that. So, any other comments or questions of any sort here? I mean, look at he. Jesus really showed that man grace. I'm going to do something for you that you obviously don't deserve. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it for you anyway. And how does that man react? He doesn't. He doesn't say, wow, that's your God. You did that for me. Not because I'm a good person. No, I'm going to go rat you out to the superior yeah, so that I don't get in trouble. He wasn't a good person before it, and he wasn't, he wasn't a, good a good person, person after, after that. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, a believer could be that way. Yep. You don't, <laughs> don't, you're not a good person before, for sure, and afterwards. <laughs> no, your, your whole attitude now is, God's given me so much grace. He continues to give me grace. I can live like a graced one now. I don't have to live like someone who is a slave to my sin nature or to the world or to Satan. I, I'm freed from that, alive to God. And I have that new kind of life because the Son gives me life. So go ahead and live like your love. Do you know that one? Go ahead Don't and live, know. live like your love. It's okay oh. to act like you've been set free. His love has made you more than enough. Go ahead and be who he wants you to be. Who is live that? like your love. Live, live like your love. I think live like your love is what we're talking about. Oh, come on. Good job. Come on. So we got a, there's one there's, song for Sunday. There's a song. Yeah. <laughs> there's a song. Oh, man. You don't even want to know all the songs that I sang while we were doing this. <laughs> <laughs> you were hymnizing yourself? <laughs> it's Hawk Nelson. Seriously. Hawk Nelson. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Are you surprised by that? Well, you surprised.